Hi, I'm John Foster. Hi, I'm Josh White. And this is Left to Burn, coming to you from a secret location, transatlantically oriented. Did you see that, that link that Joel sent us this morning about the cannibal in France who got loose from the mental institution? Yeah, that was very Hannibal Lecter. Um, I really feel like that's a, an indication of the rise of the nanny state. I mean, sometimes you just want to eat people and not get hassled by the man. Sometimes. Yeah, sometimes you just can't help yourself. Yeah. Anyway, uh, we thought we would talk a little today about the developments in social democratic parties in Europe. I was thinking the other day about a podcast that I listened to a couple of years ago now done by the economic sociologist Mark Blythe, in which he was talking about the death of social democratic parties. And I think that was a pretty legitimate topic at the time and, and now. There's recently been a federal election in Germany in which the Social Democratic Party came out as the the leading party and the, I mean, more importantly, the one sort of making the coalition decisions, which, given how they performed over the last 10 years, was a little bit of a surprise, although uh, things had not been going uh, all that well for the, the CDU. This was the kind of end of the Angela Merkel era, and it's not surprising that it's not quite the pendulum swinging back, but things have, have sort of changed. And this is a, an important time or a, a time of, of real change, not necessarily in a good way for the Labour Party in the UK. Yeah, very much so. Keir Starmer is doing pretty well in terms of polling right now, but that's largely because Boris Johnson has had a series of scandals around a vast number of parties, a growing number of parties that happened during lockdown when most people weren't even allowed to see the loved ones or close relatives, even in cases where people were dying. Um, and this has really touched a nerve and it isn't going away. But it's still the case that Keir Starmer has very little to offer positively uh, to most most British people. And yet he's fallen back on flag waving. He's fallen back on faux patriotism. He's talked up at every turn, uh, moderation and compromise, while at the same time purging leftists purging any socialist that disagrees with the party line, even Jewish socialists, over issues of anti-Semitism and Corbyn. And it looks very much like the Labour Party is a, is a dying party, despite the fact that it's currently polling fairly well. I yeah. suspect that what will happen is, at some point, Boris Johnson will be ousted internally by his so-called Tory rebels, and they'll bring in someone like Rishi Sunak or even Liz Truss, and the poll ratings will return to what they were previously. Very hard to see Labour forming the next government in the way that the German SPD has formed a new government after many years of conservative rule. Yeah, if you can't run well against Boris Johnson, you've really, I mean, you really have given up the ghost. He's, he's sort of a down market version of Donald Trump in, a, in an odd sort of way. He's, he's not so much about his overt wealth. It's it's more about his sort of personality and his willingness to break the mold or what have you. But that only goes so far. And when you're throwing upscale parties in the middle of a lockdown, that's the kind of thing that's really going to get under people's skin. As far as the, the German situation goes, the SPD has been in the wilderness for a long time, partly because Gerhard Schroeder was on the hook for the Hartz IV parts fear labor form labor market reforms which was the kind of thing that 
uh, business really liked because it made it easier to sort of get rid of people, uh, to change your uh, hiring uh, practices and to uh, lay off people more easily. Also, they had a sort of competition from the left, from the party that was uh, originally the Socialist Unity Party in the old days of the uh, German Democratic Republic, and then it became the Party of Democratic Socialism, and then it became Die Linke, which means the left, or not surprising that uh, they hang around and they have, have exerted a certain uh, electoral pull, mostly in the so-called Neue Bundesländer, the eastern states of Germany. Uh, they've had some, some problems, partly because at a certain point they decided that uh, some parts of the anti-immigrant or, or sort of concern about immigration or whatever was a, was a viable strategy for them, which in a, in a political sense you could believe uh, given that there's a lot of uh, unemployment and a lot of uh, dissatisfaction in the in the eastern part of Germany, that's that's where AfD, the alternative for Germany, is tends to be politically strongest. They have really gone down the tubes. In fact, they lost more than half of their seats in the in the recent federal election. Uh, as have AfD. AfD dropped from 94 seats to 83, which is not that huge a drop sort of in in general terms but but it is relative to uh, you know what you would think about the the sort of one of the big points of dissatisfaction with Merkel has been her relatively but well, welcoming attitude toward immigrants uh, and refugees the SPD gained pretty dramatically i think they gained 53 seats in the most recent election which made them the sort of it put them in the driving seat there'd been sort of talk that there might be a what they call a Jamaica coalition in, uh, yeah. in Germany. For those who don't know, the, there's a sort of color designation for all the German political parties. So the ones on the left, the SPD and Die Linke, are, um, are red, not surprisingly. The CDU and the CSU are black. Uh, the Greens are green, no big shock there. And the liberals, the Freie Demokratische Partei, are yellow. So the, if the, if the CD, CDU, CSU and the Greens and the, the FDP get together. That's called a Jamaica coalition, or that's what's referred to as the Jamaica option sometimes. But it became clear that the SPD was really going to run things, and it was because they were willing to partner up with the FDP and uh, the Greens. That in itself is kind of an interesting thing because the FDP is the sort of liberal party. They were really dead in the water for about the last decade. I mean, there was some talk that they were they had so few they got so few votes that they were actually not represented in the bundestag i think for for at least wow. one election cycle and then they've kind of uh made a comeback under this fellow christian lindner who's a sort of young kind of dynamic uh figure who's kind of gotten them back in the mix politically and now he's the finance minister in this new coalition that's been formed in germany uh, there was some talk that annalena baerbach the the head of the Greens was going to be the finance minister, but she's now the foreign minister. And uh, so what you have is a situation where you have Olaf Scholz, the, the head of the SPD, as the as the chancellor. And he told a French journalist, there was a he did an interview with a French journalist, I think it was last year sometime, where that he was asked what the SPD were going to do in terms of promoting European unity or... Uh, and I think the, the, the implication being, was Germany going to sort of loosen its financial 
policy to, to facilitate better performance or, or less less pain across the EU, to which Schultz apparently responded, well, a German finance minister is a German finance minister, which I think tells you a lot about the, the state of the SPD right at the current moment. Yeah, a lurking fiscal conservatism towards Southern Europe, I suspect. Yeah. And in a way, this is, I think, kind of, there's a sort of homology between this approach and, and the approach that Starmer wants to take. Starmer is, as far as I can tell, very much operating along the lines that New Labour operated. I mean, I, I can remember at the beginning of New Labour in the in the election when, when Blair uh, became the prime minister, he essentially told the Labour movement, and I think he did so explicitly, that they really were not going to get anything from him, but that the a Labour government would still be better than the Tories, which turned out not exactly to be true. I mean, you know, you can, it's a complicated issue, but, but he certainly was not very good friend to uh, any sort of social democratic conception of the labor movement or the labor party in, in Great Britain. Yeah, you had the, the the infamous clause four moment laying the groundwork of that whole era, but you also had uh, lesser known moments in the early Blair years, like I think it was in 2002, he gave a speech declaring the class war was over, for example. What a relief. Yes. <laughs> Um, and that was, well, it was the height of the kind of the post-historical narrative around politics, the end of history. All great struggles are over, and now all there is is party management and, you know, good governance, and that's it. Um, financial deregulation, lower taxes, a little bit of income distribution here and there if you can, via tax credits, that sort of thing. Friedmanite welfare policies, basically. And yeah, just keep the asset bubble going and hope and hope that the asset bubble just takes care of all our economic problems. You know, the UK had a 16 year boom far longer than the US had. So it was kind of, it was very seductive for uh, labor politicians to go in for this sort of thing. Similar thing happened in the sixties with Wilson incidentally. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a real sort of connection between that kind of uh, boom periods. The boom kind of came later, I think for the UK and then petered out in the early seventies, like it did, for everyone else, and you can kind of see how that uh, was reflected in the in the political transitions. But it's indeed it was it was the Labour Party that started talking up monetarism in the UK before before the Tories came into power in seventy nine. It was James Callaghan, the Labour Prime Minister, who was talking up issues of money supply and how we need to get inflation under control really quickly, and ultimately, you know, took took a hammer to working class people in many ways. Um, and he had conservative trade union figures on his side in that. And the result was endless strikes, you know, wildcat strikes, solidarity strikes, that kind of thing. And then Thatcher comes in and we know what happened then. Yeah, it's, it's interesting too that, uh, and I think the, the Starmer is, is the perfect example that the right wing of the social democratic, of any social democratic party, almost invariably seems more interested in getting rid of the left wing of the party than they do of fighting the struggle against the people on the opposite, notionally the opposite side of the aisle, so that Starmer seems a lot more interested in purging any sort of leftist, socialist, what have you, out of out of the Labour Party, even at the possible cost of turning the Labour Party into a kind of a rump that that can't get really anything done, even in its own sort of heartland regions. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Rachel Reeves, uh, one of these key uh, shadow shadow cabinet figures, gave a, an interview to the FT recently, um, which has been screenshotted and shared to death on left social media, where she basically says, yeah, the shrinking of the Labour membership is wonderful because all of those people are anti-Semites anyway. And isn't it great that they're all going away and we can move on? You know, they don't share our values. <laughs> yeah, the anti-Semitism thing is a is a bizarre sort of convolution of, of the left wing of, of British politics, the left wing so-called, that really le- they've allowed anti-Semitism to be defined as any kind of opposition to anything that's done by the government of Israel, uh, any sort of concession of any sort of rights or support to uh, Palestinians uh, on any matter. And it's really funny because what they don't really seem to have much in terms of concern about is people who actually dislike Jewish people like Viktor Orban. I mean, the, the conservatives seem quite happy to be pumping up Viktor Orban, who is an anti-Semite of the kind that involves disliking Jews and wanting to actually take material steps against Jewish people as such. And oddly enough, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu also seemed to think that Orban was a pretty okay guy. I mean, it's a very bizarre kind of development in in the way politics in terms of the way anti-Semitism has been viewed in the era since the Second World War. I mean, it's a very odd turn of events, and uh, Starmer seems perfectly happy just to go along with the program. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, the Labour right has very few very few ideas and very few cards to play, um, but it developed a few during the Corbyn era. Ironically, the Cor- Corbyn era probably gave the Labour right a reason to exist. Um, so there's a lot of ingratitude from right-wingers of the Labour Party about Corbynism. Um, yeah, anti-Semitism was a key a key weapon um, insofar as, yeah, there was a, a small minority of actual crackpots in the Labour Party. There was a bigger problem of ignorance and a bigger problem of people saying and doing stupid things and then doubling down. And then there was just widespread conflation vilification, manipulation going on in the media. Um, Yeah, Um, and we're now in a state of affairs, and this isn't covered in the mainstream media at all, where if you're a Jewish Labour member, you are five times more likely to be accused of anti-Semitism than if you're a non-Jewish Labour member. Uh, Because, of course, if you're a left-wing Jew, you're probably more... Um, you probably have much stronger opinions about what's happening uh, to the Palestinians than most non-Jewish people do, who probably have very little knowledge about the subject, right? Um, It's true that uh, it's it's not to say that anti-Semitism on the left isn't a thing. They acted as if if people on the left never acknowledged there was anti-Semitism among leftists, or that uh, it was... Occasionally the case, that sometimes is the case, that uh, misguided people on the left uh, do associate opposition to Zionism and opposition to Jewish people or, or holding anti-Semitic views. I mean, sometimes the two do go together. It's, it's absolutely certainly true that that's the case. But uh, there's a kind of 
political trope that goes around there. It's very popular now, uh, which simply straightforwardly associates any uh, statement which runs counter to Zionism or what have you as intrinsically anti-Semitic. And it's, it's very much a political tool. It's not, it doesn't really have anything to do with, with conditions on the ground uh, as evidenced by the fact that people on the political right who, uh, in a lot of respects have, I mean, they're on the one hand very supportive of Israel, but they are perfectly happy to be supportive of people who are uh, anti-Semitic in the in the perfectly straightforward sense of disliking Jews. I mean, that uh, you know, there's a funny sort of thing about American politics in the sense that Donald Trump is seen as being, he's being, uh, in the sense that Donald Trump is, an object of adoration by people on the far right, like the people, you know, marching in, in uh, Charlottesville going, the Jews will not replace us, who very clearly heard the dog whistles that, that Trump had been putting out, even though his son-in-law is Jewish. Um, and then uh, he then sort of goes so far to kind of show that he is supportive of of what the government of Israel wants, like trying to move the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem, which is a very fraught uh, issue at this point. And uh, it's one of the kind of real peculiarities of the modern political status of anti-Semitism that uh, you see these two things kind of united. On the one hand, the sort of the Jews will not replace us. On the other hand, let's support Israel. And it's part of, I think, that kind of long-running idea that politicians in Europe had, especially after the Second World War, when they thought to themselves, wouldn't it be great? I mean, Israel is great. Wouldn't it be great if all the Jews went there because they really were anti-Semites and thought that that getting the Jews to move somewhere else would be the best possible strategy for for achieving their aims? Yeah, absolutely. Because, um, of course, in, in historical, what we might call historical anti-Semitism in Europe, especially, uh, the Jewish people were problematized as a stateless, quote unquote, rootless people, um, and that is, that narrative has to some extent been inherited in the U.S. as well. Um, it's it's the inversion of the anti the, the kind of anti-Semitism we have popular in the Middle East, where of course the problem is very much framed around uh, the Jewish state and so on, and this is also a huge issue. Uh, in German politics for obvious reasons and the German left uh, finds it very difficult to address this I mean at least that's the sense I get from outside um, German political discourse is very very timid uh, about Israel um, mostly for understandable reasons <laughs> given history right I mean uh, the, the German government paid the West German government paid a large quantity of reparations uh, the East German government paid nothing, and their rationale for doing so was, why should we give a bunch of money to Jewish capitalists? That's obviously a very problematic approach to the situation. And you also saw in Germany, on the on the far left, a very unfortunate uh, actual anti-Semitism. So there was groups in the 1960s, uh, I'm thinking particularly of, of Bami Bauman and the kind of roaming hash rebel types, uh, you know, they bombed a synagogue, or they firebombed a synagogue, and the, their their rationale for doing so was opposition to to uh, Israel, uh, to Israel's uh, uh, 
opposition to Israel's approach to the Palestinians. Uh, but it's, it's so titanically stupid. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where you just want to grab them by the collar and shake them. How can you possibly, I mean, you're Germans, you must not bomb synagogues. Like, you've already gone down that road and see where it goes. I mean, geez. Um, but now it's, it's sort of gotten mutated in Germany into the, into the anti-refugee thing, which comes up both on the right and the left. And, and at least I think that the Social Democratic Party has been, uh, has been pretty right on about not getting on the, the, the question of refugees as a way of, as a way of gaining political advantage. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, alarm in mainstream German political circles about the rise of the AfD, about the rise of groups like Pegida or Pegida, about the rise of groups like Pegida. Uh, but now, I mean, they really have uh, sort of set out their stall in, in, in a lot of ways like Starmer has on the idea of neoliberal development. And I mean, maybe in a sort of less uh, warm, fuzzy way than Keir Starmer probably would want to do it since the Germans across the political spectrum tend to uh, be a little more okay with uh, the devil taking the hindmost uh, in, in financial terms, especially if the hindmost happens to be in Southern Europe somewhere. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I wouldn't give, I wouldn't give uh, Starmer the credit of um, Im implying in any way that he has the kind of electoral potential of the German SPD right now. Um, and what's remarkable about the German political situation is that the centre has kind of held in a way that it just hasn't in so many other Western liberal democracies, notably ours. Um, centre ground here has really disintegrated. And Starmer's mission to try and re reconstruct it is... I can't see how any of his his tactics will will move us towards that because ultimately he is just capitulating to the uh, Tory right and its uh, neo nationalist project called Brexit um, and all of the anti migrant anti refugee stuff that goes along with it. He's well, not going to put up any fight around that stuff. Yeah, it's really true that uh, across the kind of moderate left from North America all the way through, I mean, all across the, the Atlantic world, so to speak. One of the primary dynamics that's been going on since the 1970s has been that uh, parties of the moderate left, the Democrats in the United States, the Labor Party, the SPD, have been trying to sort of occupy the space in the center, uh, a lot of times by just simply taking on the policies of the notionally more conservative party. So this is one of the reasons I think that there was so much animus toward uh, Bill Clinton uh, on the right in the United States, not that his policies were contrary to the, the desires and goals of most Republicans, but in fact, because he simply took their policies, called that the democratic platform and, and went forward, and a lot of the Republicans were like, hey, wait, this that was ours. What, what are you doing? Um, similarly with the SPD, I mean, they really, if you look at, at, at Schroeder, he was very much uh, a politician of the center. He was not one of those guys who uh, was ever going to give very much to the labor unions. The labor unions in, the, in Germany, there, there tends to be more sort of sectoral bargaining anyway. So a lot of the of the 
of the contract negotiations happen sectorally, like Ige Metal will be the will do the negotiation for all the sort of metalworking trades, as opposed to uh, having sort of individual uh, company unions or unions for negotiate with individual companies uh, separately. Uh, and this really, I mean, to the extent that social democratic parties are successful now, it's arguably to the extent that they've ceased to be social democratic parties in the classical definition of the term. Indeed, and we don't really know. Sorry, I'll start that again. Yeah, and as as we saw with the Blair and Schroeder eras, that's not necessarily going to produce any kind of uh, socially progressive outcomes for most people, in term, at least in economic terms. Um, but what arguably now we're in an even worse position, certainly in the UK with Starmer, because I don't think there's even, there's not even the level of substance you had with Blairism, early Blairism. Later Blairism was just completely vacuous, but in the early in the early period, uh, especially the first term and some of the second term, you had um, you had clear clear projects, whether or not you would agree with them, and I would certainly critique them viciously. <laughs> but you had um, policies that they brought in, some of which were good, like the minimum wage. You had clear commitments around education, around healthcare spending. Um, yeah, you had a clear foreign policy agenda, and so on. Um, and you had a clear commitment to a kind of economic orthodoxy. Um, the problem now is that the Tories have even abandoned that economic orthodoxy. So they're actually, in economic terms, probably to the left of the Labour Party right now, which is kind of a bizarre situation to be in, even though culturally they are way to the right in terms of issues around immigration and culture war issues generally. That's the interesting thing about the situation of the Republican Party in the United States, because they're so controlled in a way by Donald Trump, because they're so afraid that Trump will take his base and, and not vote for them or whatever, what have you. Because they're so afraid that Trump's base will not vote for them, will not come out to vote on election day for them. They've been willing to go along with Trump's, it's hard to call it a policy since he doesn't really have consistent thoughts except for white racism. But in any case, his, he's more willing to embrace uh, protectionism and manipulations of the economy, which are really anathema to what the Republican Party has at least said it's been about for the last 50 years, essentially. Uh, so, and, and I think that that's to a great extent, I mean, the, the Tories in the UK have, have less of that problem because the shelf life of Boris Johnson's popularity, I think, is probably coming to its end and they can get back to this John Major type inoffensive conservatism, if you want to call it that, by comparison to what it's been in the last, the populist era that's that's just uh, happening now. And I really think that, uh, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see what direction they go uh, once... Boris Johnson finally flames out like what what are the Tories now I mean if if Starmer is going to be sort of Tory light like what's the what's what are the Tories what's their identity going to be now well I can see I can see a few scenarios around that I could see them keeping to this uh 
this trajectory which they've been on under Johnson, but just dressing it up differently. And you might describe that trajectory as a kind of uh, as a as a kind of nationalism. There's a kind of like uh, neo-nationalism that's ironically pretty socially liberal, actually, um, while being quite interventionist in economic terms because of the COVID pandemic. They've had to do things that past Tory governments just wouldn't do for a very long time anyway. Uh, they've stolen Labour Party policies and diluted them. At the same time, the Labour Party's been abandoning those policies, so it's a very interesting situation. But the alternative, and this is a real alternative, is that they revert back to the politics of austerity, of trying to get back to quote-unquote small government and fiscal prudence and all of this stuff. You can't rule that stuff out because there is a huge faction of the Tory party and a big part of their base that desperately wants to just shred the state. And that's why Brexit was such a, a key issue for a certain kind of right-winger, this kind of like libertarian uh, right that fantasised about breaking out of multilateral rules and just you know tearing up the rule book effectively. Um, and taking us in a very into into taking us into a political and economic situation that the country hasn't been in for a very long time in terms of like a minimal state um, situation and the freest possible market economy. It's very much a fantasy. Um, it's it's possible that someone like Liz Truss would go for that alternative, but it would be disastrous and. It's also true that the people who could take over after Boris, including Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss, they are untested in the way that Boris was untested, in the way that Theresa May was untested, in the way that David Cameron was untested. So the problems of the Tory party are not going away. Um, you know, there's still demographic uh, changes, which mean that their their base is ultimately in decline in the long term. Likewise, the economic situation means that there is a rising uh, electorate which is not interested in neoliberalism <laughs> or in you know other conservative economic or social projects. So we'll see where it goes, but this is going to play out for a very long time. And I've yeah, I have no faith that the Labour Party will you know seize the ground and win the next election, um, even if they do open up to an alliance with the SNP, for example. So it is a very stark contrast with the situation in Germany. It's also a very stark contrast with the US, because Boris is, has proved not to be, as you, as you said, he's a kind of a down market or bargain basement Donald Trump, and that's very true, because he, he has lacked the kind of fantasy potential that Trump has had, which is why he has such a huge base, independent of the Republicans, actually. <coughs> why? <laughs> well, I think there's a very interesting discussion to be had here about where leftist politics might go in the future, especially given what the likely economic outlook in the next few decades is going to be. I'm thinking here particularly of the ideas associated with Thomas Piketty and uh, a lot of the liberal economists who've suggested that 
we're never going to get back to that great moderation period. We're never going to get back to that period of, of three, four, five percent growth, which given the demographic growth of human population generally uh, is very problematic. If you don't have an economy growing to take on the new people who are coming into the workforce, then uh, you get a situation that, that just doesn't fit right, doesn't work right for neoliberalism or for any sort of the model of capitalism, the model of post-war capitalism in which there's a kind of welfare state that's funded by people working now, taking care of people who are retired or what have you. That's, I think, a question uh, maybe for next time. So uh, thanks for tuning in, everybody. That's your lot for right now. And uh, yeah, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.